0: Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue.
1: Welcome to the first in a while of 1% Better Live. Uh, did one or two of these last year, not using Zoom. We, we, I was using Spreaker, which is the, the platform I host on, and it was live audio only. I think we had about two people uh, dial in. So this is exponentially more. Um, and it says a lot about me and it says a more about party, obviously that, that every, most people are here. So that's good. I'm happy enough with that. Um, so in, in 1% better style party, I'm, I'm going to dig into your, your career, your past a little bit, um, professionally and personally, if you want to talk a bit about that, um, I we'll would start with some kind of warm up questions and uh, we'll see where we go from there. As I said to folks on, on the email and on the, uh, the the notifications we sent out, we will leave some time for questions. I have the chat zoom up. I would ask folks maybe just to go on mute so that um, the audio is as good as possible. And when we get towards the end, if you have questions, jump in and we'll we'll make it a little bit interactive. Try and keep it to around the hour or so if that's possible. And uh Yeah, we'll give it a go.
2: Good man, Rob. Great to be here. Uh, It's been a while coming. I know we've been, we move in sort of similar circles. So, and we've been talking about this for, I don't know, maybe a few years at this stage, Rob. So, it's good on a lovely evening in Cork. You're the other side of the river. I'm the north side, um, having a conversation, friends, uh, people I I don't recognize here. So, uh, I suppose, welcome to everyone.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. It's been a long time coming, but. It's, it's here now. So what I normally sometimes ask body, um, to kind of warm things up, what's the most recent thing you've learned that has been useful?
2: Yeah. Um, I should have got these questions beforehand. Uh, no, I, I, I suppose I, I'm a bit of a strange character in a way, Rob, that uh, I suppose I see uh, what I do as a sort of a, a journey and I'm constantly uh, learning. I'd say every day, uh, I suppose, we're learning, um, particularly at the moment uh, we can't but help learn when we see what's happening around the, the environment we're in, COVID-19, uh, the impact it's having on uh, individuals, organizations, society. Uh, it's absolutely phenomenal. Who'd have thought? maybe um, uh, a number of months ago? And I know I'd have met some of the people even on this call face-to-face uh, a few months ago uh, where we'd be today. Um, I think it, 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 there's major challenges for for us as individuals, for Uh, our organisations, for our society in terms of decisions we need to make uh, going forward. I think some are are probably uh, better positioned to make those decisions than others. Uh, I'm absolutely passionate that maybe some of the content that uh, we've been delivering over the last number of years is now more relevant than than, uh, ever, especially when we see the likes of the WHO, uh, Dr. uh, Michael Ryan talking about this really agile uh, mindset uh, where we need to get out in front of of, uh, the enemy in terms of the disease in this case, uh, that we need to act now even though we don't have all the information. These are really lots of things that we've been talking about for a, a while in terms of maybe some of the things we'll uh, be discussing today, uh, Rob. So I suppose what, what I'm learning today is is every day is full of, of new lessons, but that's probably the biggest lesson for me that I, I wouldn't have preempted a number of months ago that the uh, material we're going to be talking about today is so, so important and not just for us individuals, but actually even uh, at the country level.
1: Okay, very good. Taking it right back then, Potty, What's your earliest memory?
2: My earliest memory. Whoa! What, what does that um, evoke? What comes up first? Funny thing, enough, I I, I I can't really put um, dates uh, on, on 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 memories. Uh, no, I'm sure that means something. I, I've never looked um, uh, too deeply into into what these things uh, uh, mean. Probably my my earliest memories, funny enough, um, would be um, at home, a family business, uh, uh, being involved in that family business. I never, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, uh, recall anything other than a very busy house, a very busy uh, business which was attached to the house in terms of a supermarket. Um, So... I suppose I remember it in, in a number of different ways. I remember, first of all, from uh, when we were very young, uh, we were still involved in that business. It was a, f- a family business. I remember uh, maybe from the age of eight, nine, 10, having small jobs uh, in, in that business and uh, the sense of reward when you did th- those jobs, maybe when I was a bit older, uh, uh 10, 11, 12. We were given jobs stacking shelves, maybe a bit older again, 14, 15, 16. We started actually using the tills, operating the tills uh, from the age of maybe 16, 17, 18. Um, I remember actually my parents going away on holidays uh, one year and I was left in charge of of, of a supermarket. So probably a lot of my memories are are from, uh, I suppose, my own Home, uh, my family, family businesses, community, um, uh, and reasonably happy memories. Even though hard work uh, as, as well. And I think, um, and I assume this is where you're going to go with it. Uh, I, uh, and I think I've heard you talk a lot about your own background as well, Rob. You know, in terms of that has been a massive uh, influence on, on my life. And probably the older I get, the more I realise what an influence it is on everything I do today actually a lot of the things i do today and i'm actually looking at there's family photos here in, in front of me really has been informed by uh that uh, upbringing
1: yeah no definitely always good to kind of reflect back and i like to kind of connect some of that you mentioned hard work as, as potentially something that has persevered right it's like a value that people bring through and that they can reflect back on where where maybe it, it started where it came from do you remember when you were growing up or, or even when you grow up, um, what you what you aspire to be, or what was the first thing you kind of wanted to be when you were growing up, uh, ambition.
2: Yeah, I haven't grown up yet, Rob. I'm still, i still, uh, I suppose on, on that journey. Um, and I, uh, through my career, actually, I've had many different careers, and uh, and I think I, I was working out with someone uh, uh recently that every seven years there's a sort of a big shift. Uh, not necessarily intentionally in, 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 in my career, um, and I, I can really trace that uh, back, so I suppose at, at a very young age, uh, I suppose we, we took things for granted um, uh, Rob you know uh, for me, uh, everyone had a family business, you know, and everyone was entrepreneurial, everyone had parents that were very very hardworking. you know um, what did I, I want to be? Um, i suppose at a very very young age like a lot of uh kids you know i wanted to uh, play hurling football i wanted to play at uh, the uh, best level with the, with the, with cork in 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 my case you know um probably as i got older then um the value of money became more real you know and i said well actually what will i do to to generate a, a future uh, income um so i actually Probably maybe about 14, 15, sort of, I started to look at engineering for me. Um, I was always uh, uh, handy, you know, in terms of. Um, spatial awareness, you know, being able to use 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 my hands, solve problems. Um, so probably I'd say from fourteen, fifteen, really, I started focusing on engineering, which in a way was a very different um, environment to what I would have uh, I've been exposed to in a family business, especially in terms of a supermarket, which is very much human driven. Uh, it's about uh, people come in, people have needs, having to maybe have the empathy that you you can uh, have a conversation at whatever level they want to have that conversation yet when you when you look at engineering it's very systematic it's systems processes steps tools so it was a real yin yang uh, for, for me sort of going from the background I was which I'd taken for granted then all of a sudden, ending up in engineering, which was very much a systematic, driven uh, approach. Then ending up at the start of my career, uh, um, you know, uh, software engineering again, very systematic. But funny enough, as my career went on, um, I suppose I it, like boomerang. I returned to maybe some of those values, some of those insights I had uh, generated earlier in life. In particular, um, the more. I suppose I advocated a very systematic approach to innovation uh, the more I start to realize that it works really well in some environments. So I worked for three or four years with GEC in the UK. When you're designing met- blades for turbines, then you need a very systematic approach to innovation. Uh, you can't get it wrong. When you're talking about blades for a nuclear turbine, you just can't get it wrong. Whereas later then, uh, as I was um, I suppose looking at innovation in different organizations, I realized that that systematic approach just didn't work in other environments Especially where there was a very strong human element, so uh, maybe an example would be designing educational apps or designing connected health solutions where it was paramount that it worked far and with the the individual. Um, so. At that stage, probably I was—I uh, realized there's different uh, forms of innovation, uh, but definitely uh, towards the end, those human values and the skills I'd probably developed earlier in life actually became more and more important and actually shaped, uh, I suppose, the way I would advocate in innovation where there is a need for that human-driven uh, approach. Mm.
1: Just as you were talking through it there, as you were growing up, I generally like to understand about how somebody is influenced. but. Would you say you were influenced heavily on, on the direction you were taking from others or somebody or some, you know, collection of people? Or were you very definite about your, I suppose, making your own way and finding your own path?
2: Yeah, we, we, we were incredibly independent, you know. Like, I, so I'm from a, a family of, uh, I had three brothers, three sisters, you know, and um, uh, as I say, uh, there was a, um, an etiquette sort of within the, uh, the family of, of, of work and working, uh, hard to you know. Um, but at the same time, we had an incredible independence you know, um, we made our own decisions and, uh, in fairness to the environment I was in, my parents, that was very much supported. I don't think I was ever told what I should be, um, or what I needed to be. Um, so we found our own way. Now I, I did have, um, another brother who, uh, uh, went the civil engineering route uh, ahead of me i went mechanical engine engineer route he he went to ucc i went to ucd so even there were similarities there was uh differences uh, as well but um yeah I, i'm I'm not sure exactly where that idea came from to do engineering rob it just felt right it seemed right um uh, and uh that was, that's the route i i, I took now Uh, I think a lot of, um, I suppose, the journey we're on, we we come to crossroads and sometimes I wonder why did we go one way rather than another? Um, uh, But in in my case, it felt right. And looking back, I think it it was still the right decision uh, for me.
1: Mm. So the independence part, I would imagine, if you're fully independent, you're able to make your own decisions. Some of them may not work out. Is there any decision you made maybe up to the age of 18 or so just that triggers that turned out to be a bad choice that you maybe learned a lot from reflecting back
2: yeah of course like i i think if if um uh, you were to ask uh, my family members they'll tell you many times where i i uh, obviously like a young guy i did things i shouldn't have done um do i i regret them probably not no i i think um uh for me, like you know the lessons from life. Uh, if you don't have those lessons, then what would have happened, or where would you have ended up? So uh, I know I had a very close group of of friends uh, in in my neighbourhood. Played, you know, sports uh, with them. There was things we we did we shouldn't have done, you know. But it's all it's all part of life, you know. And uh, as I said, a lot of those experiences, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, are probably the difference we, between me being here and somewhere else, you know so uh, i 'm a firm believer really in in trying to uh, re- reflect on your experiences without really regretting them i, I don 't look back that much though in terms of um, uh, regretting decisions. Uh, I always tend to maybe look a bit forward um, um, but I, I suppose over over the years i 've tried to develop that discipline you know that reflection. Uh, uh, looking at what, what what I'm doing as as a flow and trying to figure out then, okay, if 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 I come to this point again in the future, would I do the same? Would I do it differently?
1: Mm-hmm. And just one more, maybe on the career. I suppose your are PhD, and maybe a lot of folks on the call listening either have aspirations to do that, or are or or, or think, God, never for me, sort of thing. When you made that decision to to actually go down that route, what were what were maybe some of the factors you laid out to kind of come to deciding? Yeah, that's the way I want to go. Was that something that was difficult? Was it a, a big decision for you at the time?
2: Yeah, it's it's a it's a big decision. So uh, you know, I spoke about that seven year thing. It's like uh, you know, um, I, I don't know repeating pattern. But for the previous probably seven years, I'd been involved in in um, setting up and running a, a consultancy um in in dublin so uh now in a way we set it up at a time when it was the worst possible time but the best possible time it was the worst possible time in terms of was the dot bomb you know everything went belly up year 2000 um uh, but at the same time it was the best possible decision because you learned so much again uh, about yourself about people around you um uh, there was days incredibly difficult uh, decisions. We built the uh, revenue very very quickly. You know, at the time it was a very respect uh, respectable uh, number. Uh, but then there was times where actually I remember in particular at one stage one of our government ministers. Uh, um, Charlie Creavy at the time, deciding overnight in a budget that he was going to, um, uh, I suppose, uh, restrict the amount of consultancy uh, services that any government department could uh, procure and that was our bread and butter. And that was a decision nearly over, over, overnight. So, like, there was very uh, difficult decisions that came out of that. So, for example, uh, there was people I would have known very well from previous, but also from uh, working in this company with me, that we had to let people go. You let people go knowing their uh, situation at home. You know, uh, young people, maybe new uh, houses, new mortgages, new wives, maybe new babies. So again, so uh, that seven years was an incredible learning experience in terms of the business lessons, with the personal lessons. And I think I probably come to a stage where in my own life, um, uh, we, we, you know, uh, at that stage, uh, babies had arrived. You know, at home, I think we we had our our third child just maybe in the months before I decided to do the PhD. So I think it just felt right. You know, uh, I'd done the other stuff, learned uh, a lot of lessons worn the t-shirt and now this was the new the new challenge um now i probably went into it with a very strong sense of what I wanted to do. Um, I'd worked um, for the previous probably um, whatever number, 15 uh, years sort of on innovation projects. And a lot of what I've seen there was annoying me, you know, and, and so I had that itch, the itch to, I, I want to get to the bottom of this. Why is it that we keep on making these mistakes when we, when we innovate? So I had a very strong sense of what I wanted out of it. Um, uh, now, that doesn't mean I would have, Uh, Predicted exactly what it would have looked like over the next uh, four years. Um, uh, But I I did have a very strong sense of why I wanted to do it uh, and maybe even a sense that afterwards I would then be, it would be the new me. You know, Uh, I would be starting a new uh, part of my professional uh, uh, life.
1: You mentioned just before we get into more on around innovation, as you were going through these decisions and you were reflecting, self-reflection sounds like it was happening were you doing that Uh, had you a process for doing that was it something you had a an approach for or was it very just ad hoc and you know occasional
2: yeah um no uh, so since then I suppose as a result of the PhD uh I would have looked a lot at um, the use of cognitive tools, would be in part, of, you know, and, and hence, you know, looking at things like visual thinking, design thinking. So a lot of that came afterwards, uh, Rob. And then I suppose we started putting that into practice. Then in terms of maybe running programs with the Irish Management Institute or maybe programs within UCC, where really uh, I suppose that was the new me. The new me was the person that was investigating these tools, looking at these tools, supporting, uh, I suppose. Uh, uh, reflection, uh, supporting maybe uh, also the other uh, facets that are important when it comes to uh, in, innovation. Um, so, I suppose in terms of making these decisions, uh, to be honest, I think it's uh, it's where um, head and and heart meet. So, in my head, it seemed like the right thing because it it was uh, going to be redefining who I was, and I I was I. I, I it was very clear that that was going to happen. I don't know why, but I just knew it was going to happen. And then it felt right in my heart because uh, for the previous probably ten plus years I had travelled a lot. Um, uh, I was uh, a consultant, you know, from actually quite a young age. Really, you know, I, uh, I started on, on the consultancy maybe um, side when I was um, uh, twenty four, twenty five. You know, so uh, I'd, I'd probably run a very high octane life for those. 10 odd years so uh my heart was saying it was actually now time maybe to spend more time as well at home especially with young kids so it just it was a meeting and and it just felt right and it it seemed right in in my in my head as well rob now would i do the same in the same way now probably to an extent but i think i'd probably uh have maybe supported more sort of uh tools and ways of, of of thinking
1: okay very very interesting so maybe you will talk about innovation and again a lot of people probably on the call know you for innovation or know your background in that in my kind of random research for this yesterday morning I was listening to another podcast uh, it's called coaching for leaders um, just for folks if they want to check a different podcast out um, very interesting guy uh, that does it lots of really good guests but he actually had uh, Osterwalder on as his uh, guest yesterday and um, and he he was talking I think Astrovader has some new new book coming out so these guys tend to do these uh, tours around different podcast hosts at the time but he talked about the myths of of innovation and he he outlined five or six um and he was going into the details about exploiting and exploring and I guess now in this world that we're living in it's forcing people organizations to be more innovative I suppose to, to think about things a little bit differently. In, in, from your experience, from your perspective, what are the kind of some of the the common myths around innovation that uh, you've seen from experience, and that maybe you could talk about?
2: Yeah, like I, I, I think at a fundamental, uh, Rob, we we all say the word innovation, and very few of us know what it is. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure. I've come across across any organization when you go in uh, to them and you're going in maybe as a consultant or a mentor or whatever else, um, that they have a clear view in their head of what they're asking you to do. They know they need to do it, and it's a top, we we know sort of in the surveys, it's a top two, top three organizational priority. Everyone knows they need to innovate. uh, Yet when you ask them, well, what do you understand by innovation, they can't tell you. If you ask them where does it happen at the moment in their organizations, they can't tell you either. Okay, so I think the biggest problem when it comes to innovation, whether it's innovation management or it's it's uh, maybe getting the engine, the innovation engine going, is really we don't really understand what we're, we're, we're talking about. So I think one of the very first steps you, you try and uh, work with organizations is to, is to get them having a shared sense of what they mean by that word. Uh, uh, now, the, I suppose the concept itself, uh, it's defined different ways, um, but it's essentially, I suppose, this uh, idea of creating value through change. Now, once you start to focus on the word value, a lot of other probably myths start to come out of the uh, woodwork. Value is relative, so there's n- no two of us will ever see the same value in anything okay and that's the first thing i suppose you're trying to get a sense of that uh, value is 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 what we're we're chasing it's not new products it's not new, new services all of those are just means of delivering value um so if if you start using the word uh, uh, value i suppose very close after that you're you're talking about the difference between needs and wants which is something i know people on this call would have heard me talking about, uh, about before there's a massive difference between needs and wants um, so, needs generally are your end result that someone's trying to achieve. Maybe as they face into a problem, wants is a means of maybe solving a problem. So, uh, I suppose the classic uh, e- example might be. Um, actually, I was out uh, at the front here. Maybe a lawnmower is is a means of doing something, but why do we have a lawnmower? It's to have a nice garden, or a nice trim uh, uh, lawn. Um, So once we start to move from uh, uh, understanding wants to needs and we start talking about uh, a nice trim lawn, we start to realise that there's many different ways of delivering that set of needs, not just lawnmowers. It could be to hire someone in for a day who will cut the grass. It could be to get one of those new electronic things that... Uh, walks around the grass itself, cutting the grass. So I think the next thing we're saying is if it's value, we need to start understanding needs. Now, h- needs are human. So you're then uh, trying to understand that we need to take a more human-centered uh, approach. We need to understand what customers, potential customers actually need. Um, again, you, you you talk to people in an organization and say, well, wh- who are your customers? And they, they might tell you if they may be in the uh, B2B space might say, oh, it's mid-sized companies, blah, blah, blah. If, if it's B2C, they'll say it's maybe um, uh, females over the age of, of, of 40 or whatever. But when you start to say, well, who are they? Tell me, explain to me who these people, these organizations are. Very quickly, the wheels uh, come off. So it may be that they, I suppose, have some knowledge of who the customer is, but they don't understand the customer. So the next step then is, uh, I suppose, trying to build that understanding of who these customers are. And, and this is where the role of empathy then comes in. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of organizations, the more successful they become, the more distance they become maybe to customers, or even us as individuals, the more successful we are, we're nearly promoted up. And sometimes we're promoted for reasons like, you know he or she is very logical, very rational, very cold, very calculating. But when do we hear someone being promoted because of their empathy understanding you know so it's sometimes it 's very hard to actually find that understanding in an organization and find the people in the organization who have that uh, empathetic understanding of who the, uh, the the customers are so I suppose i could I could go on and on, Rob you know um, I suppose then in terms of uh, understanding that and understanding the problems people face, uh, we can then say, well, what type of value do we need to create for these people? And w- at what points do we need to create this value? So it could be functional value. They need to get something done quicker, faster, maybe. It could be economic value. You know, it needs to be done at a certain price or cost. It could be emotional value. What they want is to feel safe or secure or something else, um, or it could be other types of, of, of value. So I suppose on one hand, we've got organizations really calling for people to be innovative organizations. They don't really understand it. And then once you start drilling into it, I suppose there's a, uh, there's a more realistic understanding then that, God, we've no, we, we're, we're maybe very distant from our customers. We don't understand them. We need to work harder at
1: it. So there's a very much an emotional connection to being innovative that me coming at it from you know a, a blind spot I suppose that wouldn't know as much about it would see what you might typically hear is just yeah we have to be more innovative we have to go about um, creating innovative products and just putting time and money into that but as you peel back the layers you see a bit more of a human element and as you said empathy was that a an aha moment for you when you started to get into what innovation really was, peeling back the layers?
2: Yeah, so I, I suppose I'd seen it in, in my own experience. So let's say um, in the early days uh, when we were, uh, uh, and I uh, maybe back in sort of GC at this stage, um, what, what year was that? Maybe 93 to 96 that time. Um, so at that stage, what we were designing, um, the software top, optimised blade design on nuclear tur- uh, turbines. Essentially, you know, so in that case, the human didn't play a very important role. You know, it was about the efficiency of of the machine, the safety factors on on, on the machine. Um, so maybe the human bit wasn't that important at that at at that stage. You know, uh, in terms of the design of the actual turbine it, it, itself. Now, I suppose as, as my career went on and you started designing uh, maybe systems, uh, technical systems, or maybe even products, services, processes, then the human was all over. Like, there's a graveyard of failed projects when it comes to um, uh, process reengineering, when it comes to uh, service redesign, when it comes to all these things. Uh, we just keep on delivering technical solutions. Um, technical solutions that meet requirements, but that don't end up being used or used effectively. Um, So I've seen this throughout my career. We've had incredibly successful projects because we got them in on time, on budget, but actually when you go back two, three, four years later, you can see the pain that people have in terms of using some of those systems, and actually organizations convincing themselves there was value in what was actually uh, delivered. So I, I think you can't really but uh, question maybe the way we, we do innovation, uh, especially in certain types of innovation. I think when you're when you experience those projects, you see um, the issues that uh, happen on very large projects. Like some of the the, the projects I'd have been involved in, uh, maybe back in the 90s, for example, would be uh, projects that were 20, 30 million uh, pounds at the time and in, in valued you know. So there were big big projects and yet where was the human element in some of them you'd have to question uh, was it part of the reason maybe for some of those projects being more or less effective you know than than, than they, they could have been um so i i don't think you can really walk through uh professional life you know in terms of of um, innovating whether it's processes products services uh whatever else without really really questioning uh where is the human
1: in these projects. Mm. You touched on a, something that just rem- reminded me of the conversation that we were having yesterday as well about when to kill a project, right? So when when you're doing an innovation project, like a lot of projects that I've been involved in, it's very rare that you just kill the project or, or there's always that little bit more thrown into it to try and get the value out of it that you perceive there might be in it. But in your experience, when is a good or how is a good way to kill a an innovative product or a project at what point and and when is there, there, you know, enough enough?
2: Yeah, so, like, if if we look at innovation, innovation is a numbers game. Uh, We know uh, innovation is is about uh, creating uh, change in the future. None of us uh, know exactly what the future will will bring. All we can do is anticipate the future. Uh, And because of the uncertainty in the future, of course, there will be innovation initiatives that will not uh, work. And that's just the nature of it. So, you know, like if we look at entrepreneurship and we look at the VCs, the way they invest, they assume that out of every 10, they may get maybe one, maybe one, and maybe two at most that will really, um, I I suppose, deliver uh, on the investment. But the, the value in those two, offsets anything that was invested in the other eight. Uh, So those two will probably generate a 10x, 100x return. So when we look at innovation, it's not quite the same, Rob, but it's not too different. You need a portfolio of of projects. You need those projects that are, are near to know that they will deliver uh, value in the short term, but you also need to be investing in the medium term, uh, the long term. Now, the short term is far easier to predict because it probably involves technologies, markets, customers that we already serve. Uh, we know them well, um, so generally those types of projects will deliver. You know, the the maybe the five percent, ten percent incremental uh, value. E- e- Year. On the other hand, then the stuff at the other scale, which could be the, the, the stuff you're investing on in for five years, 10 years into the future, is incredibly risky. Uh, but at the same time, when you get one of those projects right, it could be the difference between the company surviving and failing. don't know if you look at the likes of Kodak, uh, etc. Now, in fairness, Kodak had the technology that wiped them out. They already had it in their lab. So uh, generally, when we look at innovation, we need a portfolio approach. Those near-term, short-term, more certain bets, but also those longer-term uh, uh, bets. So um, so the question is, is, a, is a great question. And when do you kill these projects so I, I always say especially if it's a smaller company uh the projects you kill are probably more important than the projects you don't kill because the projects you kill early enough allows you to put those resources back into the the two to three ones that are the ones that are looking um, great now uh i suppose a lot of people w- would ask me well what is what's the biggest failure you've been in in terms of innovation and and Maybe similar to the previous conversation, I, I, I don't think innovation is very rarely a failure, provided you learn. Okay. Now, unfortunately, a lot of organizations, they don't have organizational memories. In fact, as a consultant, I remember uh, going into some companies and actually telling them what the company had done five years previously and that they were now asking me to do the same thing that we'd done five years previously that had failed. Uh, but the the organisation itself had lost that memory because of people moving from one section to another. So I think the key thing when it comes to innovation, Rob, is 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 first of all you kill ideas early enough, but you never kill them outright because very often the ideas you generate through those projects have become the, sort of, the the seed of, of of another project. But I, I suppose the, uh, the 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 key thing really then is that we always learn individually collectively about what we have just done and, and what worked what didn't work and we roll it then into into other other projects so um, i suppose there's a big um Uh, shift in again maybe entrepreneurship it started in you know uh, fail fast fail early fail cheaply and that's become part of the mantra maybe in in even innovation in larger uh, companies that we allow the ideas uh, enough time that they can uh, they can grow and enough that we don't kill them too early either because again uh, organizations have these antibodies that will kill new ideas you know there's the not invented here syndrome as we call it that ideas that seem to come from outside organizations have a habit of killing them because they're not part of the the dna of the company um so i i think we need uh, we need to nurture ideas for long enough but again not being afraid to kill them at the right time either I'm not sure if that makes sense or that, that answers your question.
1: but No, oh, no, I think it does, and we can see if anyone has any questions to kind of go deeper on maybe that at, at the end. You mentioned antibodies and DNA, so that'll kind of segue me perfectly into the kind of current environment we're living in, and I guess it's forced us all to think differently and challenge how we approach the world, how we communicate, how we do things. Specifically to you over the last few months, what are the, the things that – this has made you think differently about or feel differently about and challenged how you do things what what has kind of come up for you strongly over that period of time
2: yeah um maybe we, we discussed it a bit at the start Um probably just w- before i go to that rob I, I i think um in general um we have to realize uh and that the way humans make decisions is probably not great. Uh, In fact, the research tells us it's it's not great. So uh, I suppose we have a number of uh, cognitive limitations, um, uh, and I think they're really, really uh, vital because they explain the need for the likes of maybe design thinking that we might talk about uh, shortly. Um, So I suppose the first one is that uh, humans are incredibly lazy, and especially cognitively lazy. So there's a great saying I only came across it uh, recently uh, and I know I've maybe uh, repeated now a a number of times which is that we think now so that we don't have to think in the future. I think that's really powerful for me it sums it up we'll only think now if we haven't done it in the past but we'll only think now so that we then can create a pattern that we will apply in the future without having to think Uh, and that's a major issue. First of all Uh, before maybe uh, looking at the negative side it's also positive of course because if we didn't do that then everything would be first principles every time we see something we'd be treated as if we'd never been here seen this done that ever but there's also a a big uh, limitation to that in that very often those patterns of behavior are actually very ineffective they were even possibly ineffective when we first applied them without habit we keep on uh, applying them and um, there's this um, great um, a story I ca- came across, um, I think the w- woman is called Sue Langer, she, she wrote a book about mindfulness, and she talks about these patterns of, of, of behaviour, and um, uh, I think the example she gave was that um, as, as a child, um, she remembers, I suppose, um, being at home and cooking the, the Sunday roast, and these cut, uh, uh, I suppose, the end of the rump when they were putting it into the the oven. And I suppose as she grew up, she was trying to understand why why do we do this? And she was thinking there must be a reason for it because the roast tastes great, you know? So she asked her mother who she'd seen doing it and her mother sort of said, God, I I don't know. It's just, that's the way I saw her her own mother, i.e. this woman's grandmother, talk to her grandmother. So she went to her grandmother and she said, why do we do this to the grandmother? I said, what are you talking about? And after a while, a memory came back. Ah, oh, I know why we do that. When when the grandmother moved into their first home, just after having uh, this woman's mother, you know, as a, 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 as a baby, um, she said, "Actually, the tin that we roast the rumps in was too small, and we had no choice but to cut the end of the rump off." So something like that. It, there was a reason. A But it became a behavior, it became a habit that was just being repeated on and on and on, no one questioning it. And I think organizations are like that, Rob, individuals are like that. We just keep on repeating these patterns. So I think that's one thing that I suppose cognitively we're very, very lazy. You know, I think uh, the the second thing is uh, we make very poor decisions. Even when we have the data, we make poor decisions. And I think there's plenty of research will point out to know the role of biases, heuristics in the way we make decisions. Um, uh, so uh, I know maybe there's, There's a book called Decisive by um, um, two two brothers, actually, the Heat brothers, and they talk about maybe four or five key um, biases that really impact the way we make decisions. I think they're really relevant to uh, innovation. The first one is this narrowness that very quickly we make these very quick calls on what the problem is, but also what the solution is. So we don't give ourselves time to explore, trying to understand what the problem is. We don't give ourselves time to try and figure out what the best solution is. We just make that very quick uh, decision. Second one is the confirmationary bias. The no. Even when we know the decision may not be the best decision, we just listen to the to those words, those people uh, that will confirm we made the right decision so that we don't have to re uh, re-explore or or, or re-evaluate the decision. Um, I suppose the third one, then, is short-termism. We tend to make decisions now that deliver value now, as opposed to looking at the long-term value. And the last one, then, the fourth one, is overconfidence in in our decisions. So I think cognitively, we're lazy. We make uh, uh, poor uh, uh, decisions. And the next thing I'd say is we make very Irrational decisions, you know, is it um, Dan Arley, I think, uh, uh, wrote a book saying that we're uh, predictably irrational. Yet the assumption sometimes is that our decisions are rational. So, again, as innovators, we we might assume that what's obvious to us in what we're doing uh, uh, that a rational user or a rational customer would go with it. Yet we know most decisions, especially when it comes to purchasing decisions, are not rational at all. Um, so I suppose what does all this mean for me? I suppose we're seeing that at play in, in the world at the moment. You know, uh, We got those that are waiting for perfect data before they make decisions. They're trying to be ultra-rational. We got another... Gang, I suppose that are trying to make decisions nearly based on gut instinct of I- emotion, and we're not nearly trying to find where's, where's the cl- correct point here. You know, uh, are we over correcting? Are we under correcting? uh do we wait on the data do we make decisions now even though we don't know the repercussions and i think it's been fascinating watching that and that's maybe back to the the point i made earlier you know about um mick ryan you know and just saying guys we just can't wait we're not in an environment now which is business as usual just types of environment that a lot of us work in or in organizations we just have to make a decision now um that i think ties in really really nicely with um this idea of structured and unstructured decisions. When you're in a structured environment, you have the time to analyze, categorize, uh, and come up with the optimum solution. When you're in a very unstructured and very chaotic environment, you do not have that time. You have to go about making the decisions in a completely different way. In this situation, you have to do what we call probing. So you try something, watch the reaction, maybe you do a bit more of it, And I I think that's a very, very different type of of, of environment. Now, the the type, the I suppose, the mindset we use in innovation um, is more on that other side, that unstructured uh, problem-solving side. Uh, I wouldn't claim that this innovation is on the structured side at all, at all. Yet, most of the managers we train, most leaders we train, uh, if you go into most of the MBA programs guess what we teach them? We teach them on the structured side, critical thinking that you you can think your way to an optimum solution. When you're dealing with l- the likes of what we're dealing with at the moment, that will not work because there is no perfect solution for one thing and there's no even perfect uh, data that will tell you where you are at the moment. So I, I think that's been fascinating watching that uh, and it ties in maybe with the point earlier, Rob, that I, I think, um, uh, I suppose... It's terrible. There's a terrible human cost as to what's happening. But at the same time, it's an incredible playground for people that think in a very different way to the way, I suppose, a lot of executives, a lot of leaders in in companies at the moment, uh, and a lot of politicians, policymakers think.
1: Well, come up for me. Lots of things there. You talked about so many interesting topics. And for some reason, the um, the story of, of cutting off the rump brought into mind everybody buying toilet roll right everybody was just buying toilet roll because everybody saw everybody else buying toilet roll and weren't really questioning that they didn't really do any research into supply chains i would imagine um but the point that i wanted to make based on some of those fascinating learnings you know your system one system two thinking and the lazy brain and you know pulling yourself how do you when you learn that kind of how do you put it into practice in, in a way then? So when when you're in a fast paced work environment, and you're being pushed to make a decision or to turn your project to green or amber, uh, you know to, to to find that time to step back and um, look at things a little bit differently and buy yourself the time. What what, what are the, the approaches maybe to, to kind of share on that?
2: Yeah. So uh, the, the first thing I think Rob is, is even an awareness uh, of I suppose yourself the way you make decisions. Um, and I think uh, for us, uh, we've been very fortunate. I see some of the, maybe the individuals here that we've probably at this stage ran about 400 individuals through, uh, I suppose, uh, t- uh, innovation, design thinking um, uh, and mentoring maybe people doing projects in, in, in their own environment. So probably a lot of the insights from that um, uh, are I, uh, what I would draw on here and maybe in answering your, your question. The first one is is you have to work on people thinking about how they think. It's absolutely vital because if people don't realize what uh, mode of thinking they, they, they use, how maybe closed, how open it is, it's nearly impossible to make the changes un- underneath. So I think the, the first thing is nearly that metacognition. Thinking about the way we think. And what you're really trying to st- stress at this point is the uh, importance, really, of, I suppose, the closest thing would be a growth mindset. You no, know, Carl Dweck, that idea, you know, that some of us have a very fixed mindset, some of us have a very, uh, I suppose, growth uh, mindset. You're pointing out that the types of environments that uh, innovation is trying to survive in really requires more like a growth mindset. Um, So you give maybe the example, um, and people would have heard me saying this before, it's like um, there's a a great story about a ceramics class uh, where at the start of a semester in a university, the lecturer came in, divided the class into two, uh, told the half, uh, maybe on his left-hand side, um, look, uh, all we're asking you to do is produce one pot, the best possible pot you can during this semester, and we'll grade you on the quality of that pot. On the other, in the other group, the right hand side, he said, what we wanted you to do is produce as many pots as you can and we'll grade you on the quantity and the weight of the pots you you create. Now, what was very interesting at the end of it was the group that produced the most pots, obviously was the group on the right who were asked to produce all the pots, but the group that also produced the highest quality pots were also the right hand side. And for me, it's it's so it's so typical because if if you're if you're doing you're learning and sometimes you can't think your way to a solution you have to do your way to a solution and what they were doing on the right hand side was uh, unknown to themselves they were constantly uh, uh, honing improving optimizing what they were actually building to the point that they out, they outperformed. group on the left that were tasked with with, um, producing the the best possible pot so for me that growth mindset the ability to put yourself in an environment to see it as a challenge but also as an opportunity to learn is absolutely critical to uh, uh, an innovation mind mindset now i think once we start to put that into, in, into play and people start to realize it, they, they start to recognize maybe when they're not de- demonstrating that type of mindset, and maybe we can then start to talk about maybe some of the, uh, the lower-level initiatives we, we, we can put in place. So uh, a lot of those really come from pr- principles of the likes of design thinking. You know, If we are talking about a growth mindset, then we need to t- talk uh, that it, it should be uh, an initiative process uh, it should be about as much about doing as it is about thinking. It should be about uh, trying things out. It should be about learning from those things. Um, and uh, I suppose there's different ways you can approach that with people. Some, uh, and it's it's very much tied to this cognitive behavioral type model. Some you can explain it and you can get them to start thinking about it, and they might start then uh, behaving differently, feeling differently. Others you have to get them to do it, and then they start to think differently eventually. know. also the way we go about it and I speak, the speed at which it works is very different for different individuals. The thing that resonates is very different for some people. It's the doing works best for someone because when they're doing they're they're actually figuring out god i can see now how i'm starting to think differently i can see now how i'm starting to uh, feel differently about it. others you start with emotion others you start with 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 the cognitive the thinking bit um so i think all of those elements coming into play uh, really uh i suppose what we'd see uh, the difference between let's say someone that's on maybe um uh, a part-time um uh, I don't know, 12 month uh, or or eight month program is the difference you can see and hopefully the difference they can see by the end of it is absolutely phenomenal. But it's all small changes being added on top of each other that become hopefully habits. Now, if you're talking about an 18 month, which sometimes is what we do with the IMI, for example, uh, I always say to someone that uh, the most successful changes we've seen are people that come in thinking they're doing one thing and end up in a completely different place. Because uh, we know that most of our preconceptions are wrong because it's coming from inside us. But if you go through this process, which is a very human-centered process of building, uh, 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 evaluating, reflecting, you're constantly adjusting. Like the, the ceramics class, you're constantly improving. And in general, you end up in a place you did not expect to end up at the start. Um, so I think there's lots of then individual tools you can use along that uh, journey. And for me, innovation uh, and design thinking isn't a set of tools. It's actually a way of thinking. Um, and uh, unfortunately, in, in some of the literature, it's written about as if it is a set of tools but actually the set of tools is absolutely useless unless you start to think differently you know there's that terrible saying rob you know that a fool with a tool is still a fool you know uh, it's a bit it's a bit like that you know that we can have these tools but all they become is checklists they're completely different and the tools actually become uh, irrelevant if you start t- thinking differently they're just they're just a cognitive crutch you know they're a way of getting going but actually where the real magic comes is when we start to to think differently um now i think some of that magic um is very it can be very difficult for some people you know it's not natural maybe that growth mindset is natural but also a lot of us professionally when we go into work behave very very differently sometimes to our natural predisposition you know so in in work i have to be an expert in work i have to be uh, the expert in in my area so when it comes to actually uh, innovation design uh you're never the expert. The expert is always the person that you're creating the value for. Okay, so trying to get people to get their ego out of the way is absolutely very, very difficult. And yet it's so different to that, uh, or so important, sorry, Rob, to that mindset. If we can't get that ego, that, that self out of the way temporarily, then the I suppose the link between needs and solutions is, is blocked by your own perceptions, your own filters, uh, and, and, and whatever else. So that can be a lot of fun. Uh, we do it in, in different ways. Some of it, as I say, is maybe through the use of these tools, cognitive tools. Uh, a lot of it is uh, through questions. You know, asking ourselves or someone else asking you questions where sometimes it's absolutely pain in the rear, but it's constantly trying to get to the essence of, of what you're doing. So it's it, it, at, a, at a very simple level, it might be trying to get you from talking about wants to needs. So you're talking about this product, you're talking about its features and how great the features are, but why are you doing it? What's the need you're trying to address here? Um, so that can be a lot of fun. It can be a lot of, of uh, challenges as well for uh, for individuals. Some individuals, as I say, go faster, others slower. Um, some, it sticks with them for a long time, and maybe the rest of their career. Others maybe revert back after a while, back to the um, the you know, those old patterns.
1: Yeah, bringing a beginner's mind to those sort of challenges. And, and as you said, I've seen leaders that don't like to be uh, having a beginner's mind or, or not to have all the answers and and that is a stumbling block straight away, right? So it's kind of leaving the ego at, at the door if possible. Um, we're up to about f- f- 55 or so minutes, Paddy, and I said I'd leave it open for a few minutes then for any questions, if anyone has anything in the chat or just want to jump in with any questions for Paddy, it's your chance to, uh, to really grill him at this point.
2: This is the chance not to ask those hard
1: questions. If they don't, I have one or two here anyway, so we'll see. Hey, Paddy. How are you, Dara?
3: Paddy, very good, very good. Um, I I guess it's more of an observation more than anything else. Obviously, I've gone through, as you know, I've gone through the, the training with you guys with the IMI, and one of the things that has really struck me and the course gave me the confidence to do it, was the the actual uh, the doing the growth mindset and going out and doing things and taking a chance and failing and going back and doing it again and doing it again and it 's been something that I, I have tried across across a few things uh, since the course, and I found it to be uh, incredibly rewarding but very successful in terms of the return and getting it, getting on it as well without being too specific with it. But uh, it's uh, it's something that has has really resonated with me. But it's it's it is very very difficult to do it. It's very difficult to take that first step, and you know, kind of not be afraid and to say, look, I'm just going to do it. See how it goes, and see how mm-hmm. it comes back. And especially in a professional environment where. You know, you have your peers, and you have so many people looking. If you're in a leader leadership position, so many people looking at you to make the right decisions. So that that fear of failure can sometimes hold you back. Uh, and I, I often wonder: is that a, a huge hindrance for innovation in general, with especially within the corporate env- environment?
2: Yeah. So, a fantastic question. In fact, there's probably uh, some really good points there, Darrow. Overall, I think. Um, and i 'm uh, very much aware that I remember um, back maybe ten years ago at this stage or the first time I ran um, i suppose uh, 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 sessions for for companies it was uh, individuals from different companies, very senior people and I remember I started talking about this idea of you know let's let's let 's do things let 's play let 's try things out and I remember looking at the front row and they all had their arms folded as in God, we're we're serious corporate executives here. You're talking about playing. We don't do play. So I suppose it was an, a, a fantastic lesson. Uh, and that was the very first session I'd done. And I remember it was a great lesson because uh, I realized very quickly the way you have to ease people into it uh, has to be slow, steady, but before they know it, it's like walking into that sea, you know, you just keep going one foot at a time before you know it you're you're up to your neck or, or, or whatever else. But you, you, you take them in one step at, at a time. Um, and I think even that group, that very first group I, I did, I remember within probably two or three hours, next thing you looked around and they were all doing it, you know. Mm-hmm. But actually what maybe got their gander up was maybe some of the, nearly over preparing them for what was going to come next. And I think it's the same in organisations. We, we now go into organisation, I, and I don't even mention the term design thinking. I don't mention uh, innovation because I think there's a certain amount of, uh, uh, I suppose, fatigue when it comes to those terms. But what you do is you get people to start doing bits, you know, things, and next thing, the human need and the dynamic starts to take over and they start uh, to working with each other because we're social creatures. So actually, I would say what we put them doing is more natural than maybe the way we do things in organisations, which are sitting in meeting rooms, you know, with cups of coffee. Um, uh, like, I, I if you look back thousands of years, do you really think our uh, our forefathers, foremothers, whatever you want to call it, sat around talking about what they were going to catch that day, next week, next month, wh- what they need to do for the next season. Of course, they, didn't. they were out doing things. So I think it's a very natural uh, approach, and I think you're spot on. I would tend to ease people into it, and maybe afterwards you tell them what they were doing, not necessarily during or, you know. So I'm not sure if that answers um, your your question, uh, Dara.
3: It you all know, makes sense. makes makes total sense. There's there seems to be an art to it. That, uh, even in itself, that art, it takes some time to get used to it. But it's about just saying, "Look, I'm just going to do it." Yeah, uh, to a certain extent.
2: Yeah, and and like you, you're a great example in a way because for you, you said the doing sort of caused the penny to drop. For others, yeah. if they're if, if they're not of that same mindset, they have to think it. And start to feel it before they do it. So, and that's the dynamic you see in the groups. Some people will go and do it straight away. Others won't do it straight away because they'll be afraid they'll look stupid. So they have to think it out and you have to nearly give them confidence to, to start taking the steps by feeding them maybe the case studies, the examples, the the data that explains that design innovation uh, is, 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 is of value. So for you, the doing came first. For others, sometimes the thinking, you have to work on the thinking and then eventually they'll do the doing. Uh, now, I think the quickest way from my experience is people that do straight away, you learn quickly, but others are different and you have to work on their mind first before they'll do anything for you. Thanks,
0: Um, Yeah. I had a question, Paddy, around what you think about the new norm in relation to COVID-19, the way we interact as humans. We talk about social distancing. Um, I, I suppose it came to mind when I was taking the dog to the vet today, and you're looking at surfaces now you're looking at companies that are, I suppose, assessing risk for contact via credit cards, etc. So the whole new norm, the whole, you know, we talk about human-centered design, what is going to be the new norm? And these questions that's going to throw up where, com- where consumers and customers will start assessing companies based on how they're addressing risk to the person coming in the door, making a payment for, you know, a bottle of Seven Up or whatever, you know, be it a person hotel and they're engaging with the, the person, the receptionist. How many per- uh, credit cards is that person handled? You know, what is the hotel doing to reduce risk? You know, so this mm. whole concept of, of the new norm, that that especially is going to be relevant for the companies now. You know
2: yeah so um uh, yeah i'm not sure we know exactly what the, the new norm
1: uh, is
2: uh yet, mike or or actually will there be any new mm. new uh, norm will it be sort of emerging norm mm. don't know it's it's shifting as as we go as we go along um i i think uh, it's interesting to see what is happening in organizations um it can go two ways. I think. I think you know. There's that great um, uh, piece at the moment about who, who's the biggest catalyst for digital transformation in, in an organisation. Is it the CEO, the CIO, mm, or, COVID, the base, yeah. or COVID? COVID. So mm. I think COVID is an incredible disruptor. It, it is transforming organisation. But I think that can go two ways, um, based on what I'm I'm, I'm hearing mm. from different companies. Some, it'll be a real opportunity to implement things that they've been talking about for a while and haven't got around to. Um, But I think, on the other hand, there's also a danger that we're going to implement things without designing them properly. Mm. Uh, And I'm hearing from some, uh, uh organizations one actually that's um I, uh, fairly local here that put a lot of effort into service uh, design you know service redesign uh, where they 're saying now it 's all about speed and maybe too much speed where they 're not uh, designing it based on the humans that will be using those services, whereas previously they had been doing that. So in some organizations, I think it's an opportunity for doing things, but uh, in some cases, actually, to go against what I was saying earlier, maybe we're going to do things too quickly, bypass things like, you know, uh, human-centered design, maybe privacy issues, uh, other data issues, you know. So um, it's interesting how it it will work out. But I I think... um, uh, I think, uh, as always, I think the technologies are, are, are shifting. I think the uh, the markets will shift. People's needs will shift. You know? So I think it's very, very un- un- uncertain times for organizations. Uh, now, more than ever, we're going to test whether organizations can truly innovate uh, at a fairly quick rate.
1: Paulie, I have a question <clears throat> from the chat. Um, can you talk a little bit, this from someone- Talk a little bit about simplicity. Often great innovation is quite simple.
2: When, when, when I first um, started, I suppose, in the innovation game, a lot of them were uh, technology-oriented um, changes. So there was maybe um, a software system there, uh, Rob. And for a long number of years, um, there was always an assumption that a piece of software uh, or a system is better if it can do more than all. The other systems it competes with, and essentially that was the, what we call the feature race. We we're adding more and more features to software, to systems, uh, to the point at which some of them became un- unusable. Interesting enough, um, in probably in the last maybe five to ten years, we have a, a move towards user experience (UX), um, which is part of a bigger move I think in design anyway towards simplifying, actually value sometimes means removing things, removing features so that it becomes uh, a more effective user experience that it's an, it's an experience for the person by providing them just the features that person needs, not anything more, not anything uh, other than what that person uh, needs. So I think that's very interesting that there's been a move uh, towards that simplification of, of design, simplifying the experiences, simplifying the, the steps and services, etc. I think in, in probably in the last maybe. Uh, two three years there's even been a move beyond that where we're talking about actualization where it's about uh, not what the, the software does or the system does but it's about supporting the uh, user to become something you know and it's that idea that systems are there to allow us to become something that might be to become a More productive employee, or uh, uh, I suppose a more attentive patient, you know, the true connective health. Um, so, what we're then designing is designing around who the person wants to be and trying to figure it out from there back in. So the game has changed from, uh, I suppose, um, features you know, to experiences, experiences to maybe actualization now. So the, the, that, that, that's been an ongoing move all, all the time, um, uh, Rob, but uh, you're, you're spot on that uh, part of that is that simplification um, um, uh, movement.
1: Paddy, I'll, I'll ask two very rapid ones just to wrap up on. So, t- have you a superpower? What is your superpower? What's my superpower? <laughs> um,
2: yeah. I, Take off I, the I, shirt and show me, Paddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got my Superman outfit. Um, it's a great question, he's uh, the Rob. Male,
1: he's the male version of uh, Wonder Woman. He has a true class <laughs> who he, he puts it over you. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, it's it's interesting. I'm not sure it's a superpower. I I always get pulled back to um, mentoring or teaching, uh, even though most of my career has been spent, you know, more on the consultancy side. Um, I suppose I have, uh, and I'm energized actually by. Um, working with people, even if it's online here, I even enjoy this. So I now probably have more energy after this than I had before. And I think I said that to you before, Rob, I, I get it. energy from working with people online or face to face. I think it's probably uh, if I do it's, it's been able to read people maybe and read them reasonably well. And I think that goes right back to where we started this conversation. What is it an hour and 10 minutes ago, you know, about, uh, I suppose being exposed when, when you are working in a family business, you, you're, you're exposed to an incredible diverse group of people for us. Um, uh, we, had a supermarket right on the city boundary we had on one side, um, probably areas with the highest unemployment in the country at one stage. On the other side, we had uh, green fields with farmers. We had big houses, you know, that were lived in by executives. Apple was only two or three fields away from us. And actually, when I was growing up, it was fields because I played football where where Apple now lives. So I suppose being exposed to that diversity of of views, you know, uh, probably is the thing that I, I go back to. When, when actually, when, when, when I'm in a corner, that's probably the thing I will bring out. You know, it's, it's trying to understand uh, people, trying to understand where they're coming from, uh, maybe trying to find a way forward based on, on, on who, who they are. Um, so I, I'm not sure what you'd call, call that. It's, um, I suppose it's, it's, it's my go-to probably um, uh, superpower, if it's, if it's a superpower.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, and do you have a kryptonite then to uh, answer the other side of that? The,
2: the kryptonite then are the questions. Um, so uh, I know uh, if you want to buy time, uh, or you, or I suppose you, you want to become irrelevant, which is 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 what we should be really, because if we create an environment, then it's the environment is the important thing. So I think as as a, a mentor, as uh, a consultant as as a coach whatever else is i think it's the questions is where the power uh come in terms of the recipient you know so you ask the questions you stand back and the questions then start to engage the mind of the uh, of uh, whoever it is you've, you've delivered those So the questions can be very simple ones, and there's probably uh, key questions we use in in innovation, in particular in design, where we switch problems into opportunities. um, And there are ones I'd say you'd see in coaching as well, Rob, where you switch someone stating a problem. You say, well, how might we? Yeah, uh, solve this problem. How might we go about addressing this, this problem? Um, you, uh, you probably then maybe tease out. Well, how do you feel about this? How do you think about this? How do you? How do you think others feel? How do you think others think? So I think it's the power of, of questions is probably the the kryptonite or the or the grenade that you then throw in the environment that really gets the the the, the dynamic. Going. And I think it's those questions really force people into those cognitive uh, shadows to know where we don't naturally want to go. I think the questions are what force you into those corners of our mind which we naturally will not uh, go into unless we really have to.
1: Very good. Perfect. Pauly, thanks so much for giving us an hour and ten of your wisdom and time and insights. Uh, It's always good when nearly everybody stays for for the full call and this has been a Zoom call that people don't have to uh, join. That's uh, even better again. So i will uh'll wrap it up there any last words to to finish off with, potty?
2: no um i i think yeah uh, i i think there's um I suppose it's it's the the power the power of reflection, especially at the moment, is is something I'd probably leave with people. But there's maybe reflect uh, reflecting and then reflection, you know. Uh, and I think um, at the moment, I think a lot of us are not just reflecting what's happening in the environment, but that inner in re, reflection, you know, where we're trying to figure out our our place in in what's happening in, in the environment. So I think th- those can be very powerful uh, tools, you know, in terms of um, And I think they're very healthy tools, you know, in terms of trying to understand. Uh, what's happening in the world around us, but also our space within that world and maybe trying to find and redefine the space we individually or our organizations or our societies need to be. in. I think more of us need to be doing that, asking those types of of, of questions. So that's that's maybe uh, a, a parking shot. Um, I suppose if anyone wants to engage with me, I think uh, I'd know uh, some of the people here, you know where to probably find me. LinkedIn is probably the easiest place to find me. Um, Hopefully, there'll be plenty of events coming up. Um, uh, I know uh, there's a group of us looking at uh, maybe digital transformation and a few events around that. uh, so stay in touch, uh, and if uh, uh, maybe we haven't been in touch before, feel free to get in touch and maybe follow the, the conversations that go on primarily in LinkedIn, but also maybe events like this. And Rob, I'd just like to say thanks again for the invite. I know I've been slow coming to the, to the parlor, as they say, um, uh, but... Uh, Hopefully we'll see you doing uh, more and more podcasts, really enjoying the stuff you're doing on emotional intelligence at the moment. I think it's an incredible contribution. And again, actually maybe that is my parting shot. It's well worth any individual sort of getting up to speed with that sense of awareness and, and, and particularly emotional attention. I'd say a very good point starting point, if you're not into it, is um, this man's um, uh, podcast on, on, on the topic that have been released in the last uh, few weeks.
1: Very good, yeah. Thanks for that, Paddy. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, and this will go out as a podcast as well. If anyone that they know would like it, uh, it'll be sent out in links in the next uh, couple of days as well, so folks can listen back or Paddy, you can just download it and listen to it back yourself um, when you're out for a jog or a run or something. So, um, guys, thanks so much for that. Appreciate your time, Paddy. Have a great evening, and uh, hopefully, we'll do we'll do more of these in the future. So, do let me know if you enjoyed it. Stay safe, guys. Thanks, guys. Hey, folks. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it... Could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that a little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone, pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past and will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% Better Slack community, which you can join for free and Interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out rob at robofthegreen.ie and of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy But only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.